Open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. We'll be in verses 10 to 23 this morning. Philippians 4, 10 to 23. It seems in, in our culture we, we are growing more difficult to please. It's becoming harder and harder to be content where we are. Might be our church, might be our jobs, might be our families, might be our marriage, might be any host of things, but it seems that the struggle of contentment is real and it's difficult to find. In my dad's day, uh, my dad was employed by the same company uh, almost all of his life. He worked there, the company was bought and merged and all kinds, he worked in different divisions of that company, but he more or less stayed with effectively the same company for his entire career. That is unheard of in today's day and age. We trade jobs like we change clothes, seemingly, every day. The struggle of contentment where God has put us is a real one. It's something we feel very much Every single day, we face every single day. In our passage this morning in Philippians 4, 10-23, Paul is going to address living with contentment. How is it that we can be content where the Lord has placed us? Look at Philippians 4, starting in verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need. I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once again, once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Let's pray over this word. Heavenly Father, we've read your word. We've sung your word. Your word has been sown down deep into our hearts in a multitude of ways. I pray that you would give us understanding of your word now. Open our eyes to see what's in the text. Speak to the hearts of each and every person in this room. Only you can do that by your spirit. And we pray that you would now give us understanding and wisdom to apply this to our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is the last sermon in a series that I've called The Christ-Centered Life. Uh, it's been a study through the book of Philippians. So every Sunday, I've stood up here and sought to review the book of Philippians, sermon by sermon, um, 
as we've gone throughout, just to reinforce everything that Paul is commanding the Philippians to do, and by virtue us to do. And hopefully what you've seen is that he is focusing very acutely on Jesus being the center of every point of his life. And I hope through that, that you've seen that Christ-centeredness is not just a battle with you and Jesus and your Bible against the flesh. Christ-centeredness is a battle of you and your brothers and sisters in the church with you. Jesus, your Bible against the flesh. That it's not just me and my Bible, me and my spiritual battle, but it's you, your brothers and your sisters in the church, and your spiritual battles together against the flesh. All the way back in chapter 1, he says that he thanks God for the church, that is the church at Philippi, because they've been partners with him in the gospel from the first day until now. And he echoes something very similar in the passage that we just read. He concludes the letter with the same thing. But what he means by that is that the church body has joined him in preaching the gospel and in making disciples all the way back from the very beginning of his ministry ever since Paul started the church at Philippi. And this is not something that God only began in them, but something that God will also bring to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. And what is He going to do to bring it to completion? What is He going to bring to completion? He's going to bring to completion their cooperation together in preaching the gospel and making disciples. Meaning that He's going to continue that work in the church at Philippi. I I planted it. I saw the church bloom. I'm seeing the fruit that they're producing. And I'm seeing that in the future, God is going to continue that work in and through the life of the church at Philippi. Together, as a body of believers, He's going to do that. And how is that going to happen? Well, Paul prays in verse 9 of chapter 1. You can look back there if you want. He prays in verse 9 that the Philippians' love for one another will abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that they might approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. So the way that they're going to be brought to completion, he says, in the day of the Lord, is that together as a church body, their love for one another is going to abound more and more. It's going to grow with one another. So it's only going to increase from here on out. Not only that, but their knowledge of God is also going to increase. And their ability to apply the Word of God to their lives is also going to increase in discernment. So they'll know the Scriptures, in other words. The the Word of God, as the Scriptures are taught and preached in their church, the church will continue to bear fruit in that it will be demonstrated in their lives together, that they'll, they'll grow to love one another more. They'll grow to be, better be able to apply the Word to their lives. All of that is going to be fostered in the church. So it's only going to get better from here on out for them. But then there's the charge to them in verse 27 of chapter 1. And the charge is that their manner of life would be worthy of the gospel of Christ. You can't, they, you can't really apply that merely individually. You have to apply that corporately as a church body. Because it means that they're going to be standing firm for the gospel. 
in one spirit, meaning that they actually love each other. Well, that's a whole different kettle of fish, as a former teacher used to say. That's a whole different thing there together, is that you can be in the same room together. You can sing the same songs together. You can pray the same prayers together. But do you actually like each other? That's a whole different question. You can associate, but do you actually like? Well, he says, you're growing together in one spirit. You actually love one another with one mind, meaning you're all pulling in the same direction. You understand that your goal is all making disciples. You're striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, meaning that they're working together for the same mission, making and maturing disciples for the glory of God. And finally, he says, and not frightened in anything by their opponents, meaning that they, they take the opposition that they face in the culture as they preach the gospel with a grain of salt. They know that it is what happens when you preach the gospel. They continue, they persevere without regard to ungodly obstacles. So in other words, what he's saying to them, even in just the first chapter, is that the, the Christ-centered life is intended not just to be you and Jesus and your Bible. It's individual and corporate. The Christ-centered life is you, Jesus, your church, and your Bible. Together. But to be this kind of church, and to be these kinds of Christians that comprise this kind of church, it takes humility. Which is what he transitions to in chapter 2 where they're doing nothing, in verse 3, from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, counting others more significant than yourselves. To do that, it means that they're going to have to emulate Christ, which he goes into a long explanation of what Christ actually did and how we emulate what He has done. Although He was the eternal Son of God, He became human. He submitted all things to the Father's will, to the point of death, even death on the cross. We're going to have to have that kind of humility. We're going to have to have that kind of mind among ourselves. It means that we're going to have to do all things, he says in 12 and 13, without grumbling or disputing. It means that we're going to have to emulate, in the following passage starting in verse 19, we're going to have to emulate and honor those in the body who serve for the sake of the gospel. And we're going to have to do just like them. That's what emulate means. But then to be Christ-centered, he goes on in chapter 3, to be a Christ-centered church with Christ-centered Christians, it means we're going to have to watch out for those who teach false doctrines. And what he defines as false doctrines is those who put confidence in the flesh. Your ability to be righteous in and of yourself. We're going to have to push those aside. We're going to have to watch out for those and instead listen to and follow those who pursue true doctrine, who count everything as loss in comparison to knowing Christ and keep our eyes on those who set an example that, that, that we have in Paul who keeps his eyes fixed on Christ knowing that Christ alone is the source of our righteousness. It means that we're going to have to put aside petty differences and agree in the Lord, like he tells Euodia and Syntyche in chapter 4, verse 2. You're going to have to bury those differences, but not just agree to disagree, it's actually agree in the Lord. Meaning agree on that thing that you begun the faith with. We agree together that we are both 
brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what we can agree on. It means as a church, where we see disagreement among Christians, we're going to have to be a church of peacemakers who come alongside struggling Christians and remind them of their mutual commitment in the Lord. It's not good enough for us to be a church that's Christ-centered to just stand by on the sidelines and let suffering Christians suffer. But it means we actually have to invade, come in, step on toes, and help struggling Christians get along. Christ-centeredness also means not letting our anxiety fester, but committing to pray, not even letting impure thoughts take over our minds, but thinking about what is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, and worthy of praise, he says, as we saw last week. And so finally, we come to our passage this morning. Paul has commanded and encouraged and corrected through the entire letter, and he's urged the Philippians both individually and collectively to be a church of Christ-centered people whose lives are worthy of the gospel of Christ. These last 14 verses are not so much commands to the Christians to follow as much as they are one final look at how a Christ-centered Christian views all of life. Here's what life is for me. There are two important parts of this passage with a third coming in a final greeting. And so there's two things that I want us to see this morning. First, Christ-centered contentment. Christ-centered contentment holds everything in an open hand. Christ-centered contentment holds everything in an open hand. As he concludes this letter, Paul expresses gratitude. You can see there, for the Philippians having sent him some things by way of Epaphroditus. Remember, he almost died when he came to give Paul those things, and, and he stayed there, and the Lord spared his life, and Paul is sending Epaphroditus back to the church at Philippi with this letter in his hand. But he is reminding them and thanking them that he received all of the things that they sent, and that he is encouraged by their concern for him, that it was revived. They revived their concern for him, he says, but he's careful to explain in this little digression. He wants to be, be very careful to explain what he means by his encouragement at their revival of concern for him. It seems that, that Paul doesn't want to communicate to the Philippians that he's so satisfied with their concern that he's sort of wanting them to continue to kind of give him that same kind of concern, right? You can, you can say something in a way of, of gratitude and appreciation that sort of indicates that, uh, that you, should, you should keep doing those things, you know? Like wink, wink, right? Like, uh, like I might say, uh, I, I, I really like buttermilk pies, you know? Like that kind of thing. And, and, then, and then somebody drops a buttermilk pie by the office, you know? I definitely would not despise such things. Um, but see what I mean? You can do that, right? In such a way that it kind of promotes more giving in that capacity. And he wants to separate himself from that and says, you know, I, I, he doesn't want to say, I like it when you send poor little old me those kinds of things. That could potentially send the message to the Philippians that he's giving a not so subtle wink and a nod towards them to encourage them to give in that way. So he, he qualifies his statement in a couple of ways. First he tells them, look, he says that, uh, that he understands that their lack of communication uh, wasn't because of neglect of him, but because they didn't really have an opportunity to do so. But second, he wants to make clear that their gift, although very kind and much appreciated, was unnecessary. Look at verse 11. 
Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. You understand the reason that he's saying the gift, though kind, was unnecessary, was not because he had an abundance of things already. And it wasn't because uh, people have already given. It's because he's learned to be content in whatever situation he finds himself. That's the reason it's unnecessary. Now, as a reminder, Paul is writing this letter to the Philippians while he's imprisoned for preaching the gospel. Now, he anticipates being released shortly, sure, and he's going to return to them if he can. But he's no less trapped in a prison cell, a Roman prison cell. Now, unlike American prisons, where your food and your basic necessities are all provided for you by the prison, ancient Roman prisons operated a lot like prisons in the rest of the world still do today. That a friend or a family member had to provide for you. So, in China, as an example, if you're imprisoned for any reason, it's a shame on the family because they're responsible for taking care of you. So Paul is saying that he, he wasn't in need, and it carries a significant amount of weight because of what he's actually trying to communicate to them. He has nothing. He has no one to provide for him. Presumably, there's no other church that he mentioned supplying for his need. Paul is aging, and he's single, so it's unlikely that he had parents that were caring for him. It's also undoubtedly false that he would have any children providing for him. Notice, he doesn't say, I'm not speaking of being in need because the Lord has already seen to it that my needs were taken care of, as if to say that someone else had given him food or water and supplies. No, he, he says he wasn't speaking of being in need because he's content to have nothing. I'm content to be completely and totally destitute and starving. Just think about that for a second. Francis Grimke defines contentment like this. Contentment is to accept without murmuring or repining whatever in the providence of God may come our way. Nothing comes into our lives but what God sends or permits to come. We may be sure, therefore, that it is for our good. I want to read that again. Francis Grimke, Contentment. Contentment is to accept, without murmuring or repining, whatever in the providence of God may come our way. Nothing comes into our lives but what God sends or permits to come. We may be sure, therefore, that it is for our good. So in other words, Paul is holding his entire life in an open hand. Whatever he currently has, is sitting in the palm of his hand. And at any moment, it can be taken from his hand without question. He does not have control or authority over what is in his hand. So then he says, I have learned to be content when being brought to the lowest of lows or the highest of highs. Now, you and I may be thinking, 
I know how to be content in the highest of highs. Dear Lord, please give me those kind of trials, right? Give me the trials of the highest of highs. But if this is what contentment really is, is keeping things in an open hand. It's learning that everything is to be submitted to the Lord and taken by providence of God, whatever may come in our life, then the temptation in the highest of highs is to wrap our fingers around those blessings that He has given to us and say, these are mine. You've given them to me, they are mine. It could be money, it could be children, it could be jobs, it could be a whole host of things, but it's to take our fingers and close them around the things that are in our hands. But learning contentment in those moments is simultaneously being a steward of what God has loaned to you and not clutching it as though it were yours. We are stewards of what He's given to us, not owners. Question. Can you grieve the loss of a loved one without allowing bitterness to spring up inside? That's particularly difficult given the horrific circumstances that loved ones can sometimes be taken from us. Like the most recent tragedy in Uvalde or Buffalo that we prayed for this morning. Or even just losing a child or a grandchild, even in the most tragic of ways. It's right to grieve. Hear me, the Bible expects grief. In fact, the Bible anticipates you walking around perpetually in grief. Blessed are those who mourn, Jesus says. Paul says we are sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Knowing that everything that we do in this life is going to carry a bit of sorrow with it. An aspect of mourning with it. The Bible expects grief. But what keeps that grief from becoming bitterness? The bitterness happens when we started to take our fingers and clutch the things that were in our hand as though they were ours. So then when they're taken from us, we say back to the Lord, that was mine. You had no right to take that. And you grieve the loss of a loved one without allowing bitterness to spring up inside. Can you continually do the same mundane job and be passed over for every promotion without resorting to grumbling, complaining, or gossip? Can you earn a fortune over the course of your life and yet even your close friends wouldn't know it because you don't advertise your wealth or your generosity. Now you might be thinking to yourself, how could it be possible to face an unspeakable tragedy like what happened in Uvalde and lose a child in such an event and not let your heart grow the least bit embittered? And, and honestly, I agree with you that it would be difficult and God forbid it ever happened to any one of us. And anyone that's ever lost a child or grandchild knows that it's difficult to go, go through those times and not grow bitter. 
Anyone that's younger is normally taken in a tragic way. And it's difficult to go through such things and, 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 and not grow bitter in knowing that you're going to be scarred for the rest of your life. That mourning is never going to go away. For that matter, working a job that you feel like is meaningless and that your skills are being underutilized and you keep being passed over for promotions by people who are unethical or people who cheat their way to the top and step on people, that's no piece of cake either. How does one possibly keep an open palm in all of those circumstances and never grow embittered? Well, it's in this context that Paul utters his now very famous verse in verse 13. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Now we posterize this verse. We, we probably, many of us probably have that on a wall in our house. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We, we probably have it on our email signature. When we send it out there at the bottom below our name, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Every athlete, when they're interviewed, how did you dunk that basketball? Well, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's seen as a verse meant to explain how we're able to overcome heretofore unattainable obstacles. How did I jump out of the gym? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Are you going to rock that interview today and get that promotion? Absolutely. You know how I know? Because I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Paul is in prison. And presumably he can't just, I don't know, take that prison door off its hinges. He's telling a church that sent him some items that he can starve to death if that's what the Lord calls him to because he's content in any and every circumstance. How is he content in any and every circumstance? How does he keep from closing his fingers around that which the Lord has loaned to him? How does he keep his hand open in those circumstances? I can do this through Christ who strengthens me. In other words, what he's saying is, my natural inclination is to close my hand around everything and hold it closely and idolize it and say, this is mine. But the only reason I'm able to keep my hand open and just take whatever the Lord gives to me is because of Him who strengthens me. Somehow I don't think that's what we mean when we put it on our email signature or when the athlete answers the question, how were you able to dunk that basketball and win the game? See, Christ-centered contentment is Christ-empowered. It's empowered by Him to be content, to keep everything in an open palm. But the second thing He says that I want us to see, Christ-centered contentment produces Christ-centered gratitude. Christ-centered contentment produces Christ-centered gratitude. There is a return here that Paul makes from his digression in verse 14. He returns and he... he, he, he 
earlier started to thank the Philippians for the gift that they had sent, and then he, he wanted to kind of explain what he meant by that. But then when he returns, he's reminded of their ongoing support for him in verse 14 and following. In fact, he says, they've been with, you've been with me since the beginning of the gospel, meaning that they've been with him since the beginning of his gospel ministry, and they faithfully worked to generously meet every single need that he ever had. Yet again, in verse 17, he breaks away and he says, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Think about that for a second. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. See, he's content whether he has plenty or whether he has little. His hand remains open by the power of Christ. His contentment changes even the nature of his gratitude. He's not merely grateful that they shared with him, although he is grateful that they shared with him. He's not merely grateful for their ongoing support throughout his ministry, although he is that too. He's grateful mostly for the spiritual credit that is building in their account. See, Paul is a disciple-maker of disciple-makers. That's what he's got in his mind constantly from beginning to end. So he remembers all the way back in the beginning of his ministry when he threw gospel seeds on the ground to a fabric dealer named Lydia outside the gates of Philippi. Remember that? He threw those seeds. There wasn't even enough of a godly presence in the town of Philippi to establish a synagogue. That's what's going on in Philippi. There's nothing there. And he's outside the city walls, and he sees a fabric dealer named Lydia. He begins to preach the gospel, throwing gospel seeds out there, and it takes root in Lydia, and her and her whole family are saved. And then he remembers getting hauled off to jail where he throws gospel seeds and the Philippian jailer and his whole family are saved there in Philippi. And then he watered and watered and watered and God caused the seed to grow and bring forth life. Then all of a sudden, that sapling in Philippi turned into a giant tree and now that tree is bearing so much fruit that he finds himself in jail and they're feeding him. Think about that transition that's taken place in the town of Philippi in what, like 10 years maybe. He's gone from no godly presence whatsoever to now they're taking care of me. Imagine what kind of growth that is. So Paul's encouragement in the Philippian ministry is in the fruit that their church is producing in every way to their benefit. It's to their benefit now, as we already saw, that what they're doing is they're growing in the knowledge of God, they're growing in the love for one another, they're growing in discernment, and their love is abounding more and more, so much so that they would be caring for Paul who's now in prison but it's also to their benefit in that they're going to receive full repayment in the age to come. They're giving of their own possessions, which are not easy to come by. But they're giving of their own possessions and their own money to a person who's in prison. And they're trusting that the Lord is going to supply for them. So Paul's gratitude for their gift is also Christ-centered. You see that? He's grateful for all of the things that they're doing to center Christ in their life, in their giving. 
and it's evident in their giving. But it's not just that. Let's go through these, this little section and you'll see how many things he pulls back to a gospel-centered connection in his gratitude for them. First in verse 14, their gift symbolizes their sharing in his affliction. They're participating in his gospel ministry. But then look at verse 15. Their partnership in gospel ministry has been true since the beginning. He says that in 15 and 16. But then third, look at verse 17. Paul's gratefulness that their gift does not end in the gift. It goes past the gift to what they will receive both from their partnership with Him and what they will receive from the Lord when the Lord returns. So their, their partnership with Him in ministry is them looking past this life and into the next. Look in verse 18, we see the fourth thing. What, whatever they sent, whether it was a small gift or, or some large gift, it filled him up, but again, that gift was, what does he say? A fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Their, their gift is also connected to the fact that God is pleased by your gift. Fifth, look at verse 19. He's confident that God will supply their needs too, which I think is how we're supposed to read this verse, is him saying, you've supplied my need and I'm confident that my God will supply your every need also, inasmuch as He has supplied mine. And then look in verse 20. He says, God receives all the glory for all the giving and receiving between you and I. So everything He's grateful for is all connected back to the centrality of the Gospel, to the centrality of Christ. It's Christ-centered gratitude. Now, when's the last time you were grateful in that way? I'm grateful for your gift because that means that we're together in Christ. Your reward from God will be great. Your gift was pleasing to God. You trust that God will supply anything you lack because of what you sent to me. And ultimately, I'm grateful because God receives all the glory from your gift. When's the last time your thank you card said that? As adults, our, our gratitude is really not that different than our kids' gratitude on Christmas Day. Thanks. That was awesome. But the kind of gratitude that Paul exhibits here can only come from a person who holds everything in an open hand and who sees God as the supplier, the giver, and the taker. Like Job, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It can only come from someone who sees his whole life as simply an offering to the Lord. And whether I die by beheading or whether my dead body is thrown in a trash pile somewhere, it matters not. The only thing that I have to do is serve the Lord every single day of my life. That's what my life is for. But frequently our gratitude will be for the gift and it will end there. Think about all the times you've been grateful for the things that somebody has given to you. Our gratitude often ends in the gift. Oh, that's useful for me. Thank you. Oh, I love the way this looks. Thank you for this gift. You know just what I like. The gratitude for the gift reflects its usefulness for us. And our gratitude terminates in the gift. But Christ-centered gratitude 
says that the gifts supplied to me are a reflection of God's goodness to me in taking care of my needs. And they're a reflection of God's goodness to that Christian brother or sister who gave the gift because God moved in them to give generously and they're trusting that God will supply everything that they need in the future. And the glory for this gift exchange goes to God in the hearts of both the giver and the receiver, you see. That's a Christ-centered gratitude. But what's at the root of that? If you were to dig down all the way to the root of that, what's at the root? When Paul says, I can do all things through Him who strengthens me, I don't think he means that as simply as we read it on the surface. The word that he uses there for strengthen is not like a bodybuilder who goes into a gym and who gets stronger. It means to cause one to be able to function or do something. So when Paul says, him who strengthens me, he really means him who made me alive. Him who enables me to do this. Remember, Paul understands himself before Christ as a dead man. He's dead in his trespasses and sins. God made him alive. But through Christ's sacrificial death and resurrection, Christ alone has raised Paul from the dead. He's transferred him into the domain of, uh, into the domain of his, or into his kingdom from the domain of darkness. And he's given him hope for eternal life to come, though he deserved an eternity in hell. So you understand that for the Christian, Anything we have is better than what we deserve. You understand that? That's the perspective of the Christian life. Anything I have is better than what I deserve. And if everything that we have is contrasted against what I actually deserve, then we're grateful for everything around us. But if we understand that what we deserve is an eternity in hell, then all of a sudden I become grateful for every little thing in my life because it, it is far better than an eternity in hell. I'm grateful for every person in my life, whether they are people of encouragement or sometimes people that bring thorns in the flesh. They remind me that His grace is sufficient for me for His power is made perfect in me. I'm grateful for every morsel of food in my pantry, if that's what I understand. Even for the things that test us because they produce steadfastness and resolve for following the Lord. All of our gratitude should stem from our contentment in whatever the Lord has given to us. And if we hold everything in an open palm and we understand that the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, then all of a sudden anything in my hand, however little or big it may be, I'm grateful that God has placed it there. If you're not in Christ, there is no alternative. If you're not in Christ, your glory, your gratitude will always terminate in the gift. Because you don't understand that there is a God above and beyond all of that. You don't understand that none of this is for you to own. That all of this is His. He owns it, and you are just a steward of it. The command is to repent 
and believe in Christ and understand that all glory and honor and praise belongs to Him. Paul's closing here in this passage is short, but it reinforces his Christ-centered tone throughout this entire letter. Listen to what he says. The brothers who are with me greet you. But listen to this. This this is where I think it gets really interesting. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Remember, Paul is in prison with the praetorium around him, those who guard Caesar. And he says, all the saints, meaning all the Christians, greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. See, holding everything in an open hand, Paul was given a prison sentence. That was what was put in his hand, a prison sentence. And so you know what he did with it? He started a prison ministry. Now, whether those who are here in Caesar's household that are Christians are there because Paul shared the gospel with them and they, they came to faith in Christ by virtue of his prison ministry there, or maybe they were discovered by Paul when he was in prison and he began sharing the gospel and they said, hey, I'm a Christian too, right? Either way, he is telling the church at Philippi, there's a group of Christians here in the midst of Caesar's household. His contentment is in the Lord and it's led him to bloom where he's planted. And that's the central central application for us, isn't it? If we are content, and if we see everything as being grateful for what the Lord has put in our hand, then we'll bloom wherever we're planted. There'll be nothing in which we're dissatisfied. No job in which we're dissatisfied. No church in which we're dissatisfied. We'll bloom wherever we're planted. And so this is what's left for us in our quest to grow in Christ-centeredness. Is first, to compare everything you have with what you deserve. As Christians, you know all too well what you deserve is an eternity in hell. Compare everything that you currently have in life with what you deserve, and you'll see how grateful you should be. Second, consider every trial as a means of God's favor to you in that He is producing steadfastness in you. Consider every trial as a means of God's favor to you, producing steadfastness in you. And finally, look beyond the gift to the one who gave it, the eternal giver. Always look beyond the gift. That's for us the Christ-centered life, is not to merely take what has been put in our hand and wrap our fingers around it, but keep an open palm and give gratitude to the one who placed it there. Whether it brings us pain, or happiness. Gratitude to the one who gave it. Let's pray before we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Heavenly Father, our prayer is that we would be forever grateful. That we would look to you, the author and perfecter of our faith. That we would see in you the eternal giver, the the Father who, who withholds no good gift from his children. I pray, Father, that we would be content wherever we are. We struggle with contentment, every single one of us, top to bottom, every ounce of us. And when we have things, particularly in our world, where we can afford so much, we wrap our fingers around those things and say those are ours. And you remind us time and again, no, they're not. So we pray that you would empower us by Christ to keep an open palm. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.